Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 29, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It's late Wednesday night, December 8th, and I am in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. Also, I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's been a while since I have been with you in the shed. And life is good. Life is good. Um, Life is difficult, and life is hard. And life throws things at you that you're not prepared for. And yet life is good. Um, Oftentimes I hear people say, my life sucks, life sucks. Man, life sucks. And the truth is, your circumstances might suck, and you might be experiencing things that are hard or difficult or painful. Things may happen to you that you do not deserve, things that are not your fault, but life does not suck. And in those moments where you feel discouraged and you feel apathetic and you struggle to get out of the bed or you don't like what you see when you look in the mirror or you feel as though you have no purpose, or you're dealing with things like loneliness or depression or anxiety. It's in these moments that it's important to count your blessings, to remember the ways that you are taken care of, and the people that you do have in your corner, and the things that are going well for you, and the things that you have overcome in the past, and the things that you have to be thankful for. It's in these moments that, uh, that you got to dig deep, man. You got to find something to motivate yourself. Find something within you to motivate yourself. You have to dig deep to do the things that you need to do and that you have to do even when you do not feel like them. To do the things that you know are good for you, that make you feel alive, that make you feel connected to other people in your life and to the world around you. Return that text message. Go for a jog. Dust off your yoga mat or your weights. Set your alarm for an hour earlier. Stop hitting the snooze so many times. Take initiative at work. Spend some time with your kids or with your significant other. Take your dog for a walk. Read a book. Do some journaling. Find some way to remember what it feels like to be alive. What it feels like to be inspired. What it feels like to chase after a dream to possess ambition. To be the person that you were on the path toward being before this hardship happened and derailed you. Life does not suck. Your circumstances very well may. But your life, 
Your life is a blessing. and You have to live it, man. You have to live it. Don't take it for granted. Don't take people around you for granted. One of the reasons I haven't done a show for about 20-some-odd days, almost a month now. Um, First, I took a week off for my wife's birthday uh, as a present to her. My mom got a shout-out. Mom's got a shout-out on the podcast. My wife got a week where I didn't record, and uh, I spent that time with her instead. And then the very next week, um, my grandmother passed away. Not uh, not my meemaw that you hear about on the show all the time, but my grandmother on the other side of my family, my dad's mom. And uh, she had had a stroke, and she was 89 years old, and she had lived a long life. And on Thanksgiving night, my, my sisters and my father and I, uh, we got to visit with her and to... To say all the things that we needed to say to her, to reminisce and to show appreciation and to tell her that we loved her. And then a few days later, she passed away. And I'm 32 years old, but this was the first close family member that I've had that has passed away. Um, Never had a grandparent that I I knew who had had passed away or an aunt or uncle or cousin or sibling or parent or anybody this, this close family. Um, and so I didn't really know what to expect or how to handle it or or what it would be like. And it brings up all kinds of emotions that you're not prepared for. Feelings of deep appreciation for all that that my grandmother um, did for us, her grandkids. Uh, Feelings of guilt for not taking more time to spend with her, to listen to her stories, to figure out why she was the way that she was and the things that she went through in her life and uh, the things that she survived that contributed to personality quirks and differences. Um, Feelings of sadness for the loss and for the fact that now one whole side of my family is uh, basically down to my father and myself and my son. And it's a complicated thing. My grandmother lived an extraordinary life, and I wasn't always the grandson that uh, that I should have been or I wished I was, and we we weren't always as close as as, as maybe we should have been. Um, but I know she was always proud of me, and and she lived an extraordinary life. Um, she was a single mother in a time that that was a lot more difficult even than it is now. And she raised uh, one one hell of a man in my dad. Um, my dad is my best friend. He's uh, who I look up to. He's who I model myself after as a man and, and as a father. And she raised him by herself. My grandmother could stretch a dollar like nobody's business. Um, it's because of, of her saving and her frugality that uh, my sisters and I were able to get college educations without taking on student debt, uh, a rarity. Couldn't have happened without my grandmother. My grandmother was from a small town in rural Tennessee, and she grew up on a, a farm. Her family were tenant farmers, and uh, she grew up picking cotton. She grew up very poor. She had to do all of the chores alongside her brothers uh, as the only girl, and then she had to go inside the house and help with the cooking and the cleaning also. And it gave her a certain resiliency and a certain strength that's rare to find in a person. She graduated high school, which was an accomplishment, um, something that her father did not want her to do. And 
from rural Tennessee, she left high school and uh, took a bus to Washington, D.C., where she got a job working for the FBI. Uh, imagine being 18 years old from Podunk, Tennessee, and then you're in the nation's capital working for the FBI. Um, not only that, but my grandmother worked for NASA uh, when we landed on the moon. Uh, that movie, Hidden Figures, I don't think it's, I don't think it's about my grandmother, but uh, she was there. And she worked for NASA when we landed on the moon. And uh, I should have brought that up in the moon landing episode. Uh, I actually never really talked to her about it as an adult. Um, my grandmother was not a saint. She was not a perfect mother, a perfect grandmother, a perfect in-law, a perfect person. But she was a hard worker, and she was honest. And she was a woman of faith. And she raised my dad on her own. And she accomplished uh, some pretty incredible things working for the FBI, for NASA, and then as a civil servant for the, the Armed Forces, a 32-year public service career. And as an adult, I realize now the strength that all of that took. And I'm thankful that I got to tell her goodbye, and that she got to meet both of my kids, and I'm going to miss her. And grief is something that we all have to experience at, at one time or another. It's part of the human condition. It's what it means to be a person. Life isn't forever. And when we lose somebody that is a part of our family and has been our whole lives, none of us know what to do next. None of us know how to handle it. None of us. It's like all we can do is do the best that we can with it and remember the good times and share those memories and stories with each other and, and try to live in such a way that makes the most of the sacrifices that that person made for us. And I can say that I wouldn't be where I am in life. I wouldn't be who I was if it weren't for the legacy that my grandmother started. And if it weren't for the way that she raised my father who raised me. And so I know that sometimes life is hard. And the things happen that we don't understand, that we're not prepared for, that we don't have tools in our tool belt to deal with. But we have to figure out a way to manage and to remain inspired and to keep our imagination and our zeal for life intact. Because ultimately, that's what it means to be alive. It means to be connected to your creator, and connected to the you that you were created to be, and connected to the passions and the dreams that are inside of you, and the people around you. So for all of all of you hearing this tonight who have lost someone this holiday season, um, prayers and good vibes your way. I'm with you. It's hard, man. And for those of you who are hearing this who aren't in a good place, who are struggling with mental health, who are having a hard week, a hard month, a hard year, I'm with you. I get it. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that your life sucks. Your life is valuable. Your life is valuable because you're valuable, because you have worth, because there's somebody that cares about you, because there's something about who you are that adds value to the world around you in such a way that nobody else could do that. No one else could provide that. So find that spark again. Do what you have to do to motivate yourself. If you floated through your day-to-day -day and, and you coasted and you just kind of you just didn't have it in you, that's okay. Start again tomorrow. Start again tomorrow. Your life is good. Life is good. Let's... Um, Let's get to some comments and corrections from our last episode. Uh, I love you, Grandma. Keystone 301, Hanobia 280, Townsend 195. 
We continue to grow our community on Twitter. We're up to 1,700 followers there now. And uh, I love hearing from you and interacting with you over there. So if you're not already, you too can follow us on Twitter. You can find us at In The Shed 4. You can also subscribe to our In The Shed with Wes Anderson YouTube channel. All episodes of the show are posted there. And if you wouldn't mind, please take a minute of your time wherever you are upon hearing this to look up the show on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. I would really appreciate it if you would do that. On last week's show, or I should say three weeks ago, we covered the approval ratings of President Biden and Vice President Harris, which stood at 38% and 29% respectively, and I said that we would do our own poll. We took it to Twitter and asked you. We were aiming for 1,000 votes on each poll, but we only got 25 votes on one poll and 19 on the other. It's hilarious. I'll ask a, uh, I'll do a poll about cartoon characters or a favorite movie and get a couple hundred votes. And then we run a poll like this for we can get 25 votes and 19, but that's okay. In our completely scientific poll, President Biden's approval rate stood at 32%, while President Harris came out at 26%. So we were uh, pretty close to the national polling data. Not data, data. We also conducted a poll after our last episode asking which food could you go without on Thanksgiving, turkey, green bean casserole, mashed potatoes, or pie, and astonishingly, 46% of you wrongly said that you could go without green bean casserole. That's the wrong answer. It's just the wrong answer. And on previous episodes of the show, we've gleefully speculated on the possibility of Matthew McConaughey, Mr. Failure to Launch himself, becoming the governor of Texas. Unfortunately for all Texans and Americans alike, Mr. McConaughey announced this week that he's decided against a gubernatorial run. And I am not all right, all right, all right. (laughs) okay that's all the comments and corrections this week i've got a great show for you tonight but first let's get to some listener emails our first email comes from mario or could it be mario i don't know from louisiana uh mario we'll say mario mario says wes just wanted to thank you for the show it's been a rough year for me and your show always makes me laugh and usually makes me think too I'm glad that I found it. Hey, thank you, Mario. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I'm glad that it makes you laugh. And uh, also that sometimes, sometimes it makes you think because you said that usually it makes you think. Um, That's what we intend to do. We intend to have a good time um, to give you the news, but do it in a lighthearted way and to have some fun. So thank you for listening to the show, Mario. Our next email comes from Leslie from Indiana who writes, Wes, what do you think of President Biden's release of 50 million barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Reserve? Did you see the press conference his energy secretary had about it? Um, Yes, Leslie, I did see the press conference. Um, This was President Biden's administration's response, of course, to the um, increase in gas prices. Uh, There's been a lot of outrage and civic unrest about that. Uh, People do not like what they are paying at the pumps. And if you have been on Twitter or Snapchat or TikTok, then you have probably seen the snippets or pictures or videos of people who were pumping gas um, only to find a sticker of 
President Biden's face uh, pointing at the gas price with a thought bubble that says, I did that. <laughs> um, so 50 million barrels sounds like a lot. Turns out it's like, what, two and a half or three days worth of uh, oil that we use when it comes to gas in this country. Uh, so in the long run, uh, that probably won't make that big of a difference, although it may have helped uh, at least right away. And I did see the press conference and I thought that it was bizarre. Um, the, the question was asked. Uh, so one of the reporters asked the uh, energy secretary. So President Biden is releasing 50 million barrels. How many barrels? of oil do we use as a country in a day and her response was uh i don't really know i don't have that information in front of me and either either she was lying or she was really 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 bad at her job right um you are the energy secretary what do you mean you don't know how many barrels of oil we use in a day that is literally your job and you're having a press conference about the release of 50 million barrels from our strategic reserve. I believe that's information that you should have. Like, hey, that might be a fireable offense. To me, that came across almost like as if a kindergarten teacher had got back on the bus after a field trip. And the school principal said, there are 15 kindergartners here. Is this all of your class? How many students do you have? And she said, hmm, I don't know. I don't have that information in front of me. <laughs> I might have all my class, or I might have left three or four of them at the museum. Um, that's information that you're supposed to have in that moment. Like, that is something that you need to know how many barrels of oil we use in a day. And, and uh, my guess is that probably she did know that information, and she did not want to answer it because uh, 50 million barrels is not going to make a dent in the long run. And uh, she was trying to take a victory lap and uh, put on a good face for the decision uh, to release those barrels. So I'm not saying, I'm just saying. And finally, Bruce from Milwaukee writes, Wes, if this is a new show like you claim. <laughs> I love when emails start off this way. If this is a new show like you claim, then why have you not even mentioned the trial and exoneration of Kyle Rittenhouse? Um, Bruce, that is a fair question. And uh, let me give you the best answer that I can. Um, for one thing, this is a news show, but it is a different type of news show. Uh, we don't do sensationalism. Uh, we don't do fear-mongering. Uh, we don't do othering on this show. Uh, we try to keep it fair. Um, we represent both sides. We, we try to give you the facts. We try, uh, to just give you the story and then let you make of it what you will. I believe that most people are, um, fair enough and intelligent enough to hear the story that's part of the reason why we read uh, the full article and not just give headlines i believe that people can hear the story for themselves and draw their own conclusions and just to be honest uh, one reason i kind of stayed away from this story is because in this case it was really hard for people to do that um because both the right and the left kind of took this story and ran with it and i really wasn't comfortable with how either side made sense of the events of the night in question or the the trial at hand because if you watch msnbc or if you read uh left-leaning articles or newspapers you may have been led to believe that kyle rittenhouse was a white supremacist that came to this um protest about police brutality and open fire on people um 
and that the judge in the case was completely biased and unfair and that it was a sham trial and that uh, we are in trouble as a nation. Our democracy is at risk. Um, if you watched uh, Fox News or some of these other channels, uh, you may have been led to believe that Kyle Rittenhouse was a complete hero and that he should be uh, a step or two away from sainthood and that the liberal media was out to vilify him and that nothing you heard was accurate. And when I actually watched the trial for myself, I didn't find either of those things to be a fair representation of the facts. So just to give you a couple of things that you may not have heard otherwise, you may have heard it claimed that this was a racially motivated murder uh, by Kyle Rittenhouse. When truthfully, Kyle Rittenhouse is a white kid who shot and killed two white men. Um, that's not spin, that's just a fact. You may have heard it said that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse illegally crossed state lines with an assault rifle um, when really uh, he didn't cross state lines with the gun. He got the gun once he crossed into Wisconsin. Um, and it turns out that he worked in Kenosha. It turned out that his house was only a mile from the state line. You may have heard that this was completely unprovoked. Um, it came out in the trial that uh, people testified that one of the people that he shot had actually threatened him earlier in the night, telling him that if he found him alone, he was going to kill him. And the one person that got shot and survived that night actually testified on the stand that Kyle Rittenhouse did not shoot at him until he approached Kyle Rittenhouse with a gun drawn and pointing it at him. Another uncomfortable fact that came out in the trial is that the two people that died actually had criminal backgrounds. Um, one of the men that died had served time for horrific crimes against children. Um, so honestly, Bruce, I was not comfortable with the narrative from the left that these people that got shot and killed by Kyle Rittenhouse were heroes who were um, acting against a mass shooter. And I was not comfortable with the narrative on the right that Kyle Rittenhouse was an American hero that was just practicing his Second Amendment rights and defended his life. Um, the truth is, when I watch the trial, when I see this whole thing play out, um, I didn't see a lot of justice from either camp or from any result that could happen. None of it was something that should be celebrated. To me, this is my opinion. None of it was something that should be celebrated or that um, made heroes out of people involved. It was a lot of bad decision making and a lot of circumstances that could have easily been avoided. And um, I don't think that it's ever a good idea for a 17-year-old to arm himself and enter into a place where there has been looting and rioting and, and things uh, lit on fire I don't think that a 17-year-old should be trying to defend someone's business. That's a poor situation for a kid to put himself in for, or for adults to allow a kid to put himself in. Nor do I think that because a kid shows up in a place that he probably should not be and he's armed, that he should be swarmed and beaten or that he does not have a right to defend himself if that's what happened. To me, it was just a cluster. And it was a series of unfortunate events and bad decision making all the way around by everyone involved. And um, no matter how that situation played out, uh, it was going to be tragic and it was going to be a loss of life and it was going to be unfortunate no matter what. So while the facts don't necessarily line up with the narrative that I saw play out on the left and with some of the outrage from the verdict, I'm also not comfortable with venerating Kyle Rittenhouse either. To be honest with you, I just did not see very much fair coverage of this trial uh, or of this situation. 
I didn't see people focusing on the facts as they were borne out. I saw people trying to take advantage, trying to use the situation to play towards their audience, um, to stoke fear. And I'm not even sure what made this national news um, other than it happened in a place that was already full of civil unrest that had to do with a police shooting that many people found to be questionable. And it was a, a tinderbox. Um, somebody shooting somebody else and claiming self-defense, uh, to me that does not make a national news story um, in and of itself. And in this instance, uh, this particular story was being covered wall to wall. Um, on this show, we try to give you important news stories, but we also try to give you news stories that you're not hearing um, from the mainstream media or that's not being covered uh, in, in a proper manner. And um, the facts were just not be not being borne out in a way that made sense to me. And I was trying to make sense of the facts myself. And so that's kind of my reasoning and my thoughts and my rationale for why I have not covered that case. I don't think that there's anything to celebrate there. I just don't. I don't see anything positive. Um, I hope that Kyle Rittenhouse goes on with his life and uh, lives as an upstanding citizen and makes some better decisions and changes. I question uh, the adults in his life and um, those that had influence over him. I question some people on the right that were trying to kind of glom onto him and benefit from the situation. And I question those on the left that completely ignored some of these facts and it looked to turn this into something that it wasn't. Um, And I just don't see a lot to celebrate and I don't see a lot that is good. And I don't see a lot that was being covered in a way that was worth reporting on this show. Um, It's a fair question. I highlight what I can. I give you the facts as I know them. And uh, this was a situation where the facts were were just not clear to me for quite some time. I appreciate you listening to the show. All right, that's all the emails for this week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's in the shed with Wes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. All right, let's switch to this. Let's get to the news in the world of politics and let's hit the headlines. Lost in the cabbage patch, Biden likens holiday supply crunch to past Christmas toy fads, writes the New York Post. Partisan haggling and vaccine mandate fight threaten government funding deadline, according to the Washington Examiner. Democrat spending bill puts 3 million illegal immigrants on path to citizenship, says the Independent Journal Review. From The Economist, as nuclear talks resume, Iran is rattled by protests over water. And finally, the Republicans have become the party of organized violence, and that is according to The Nation. I don't know if you can hear that, but somebody car alarm going off right now. It's late. I don't know what's happening, shouty. Our first story in the world of politics, China forcefully harvests organs from detainees, tribunal concludes. China's organ transplant trade is worth $1 billion a year, according to a tribunal. The organs of members of marginalized groups detained in Chinese prison camps are being forcefully harvested, sometimes when patients are still alive, an international tribunal sitting in London has concluded. Some of the more than 1.5 million detainees in Chinese prison camps are being killed for their organs to serve a booming transplant trade that is worth some $1 billion a year, concluded the China Tribunal, an independent body tasked with investigating organ harvesting from prisoners of conscience in the authoritarian state. 
Forced organ harvesting has been committed for years throughout China on a significant scale, the tribunal concluded in its final judgment Monday. The practice is of unmatched wickedness on a death-for-death basis, with the killings by mass crimes committed in the last century, it added. In 2014, state media reported that China would phase out the practice of taking organs from executed prisoners and said that it would rely instead on a national organ donation system. The Chinese minority of foreign affairs on Tuesday was not immediately available to comment on the tribunal's findings. In a statement released alongside the final judgment, the tribunal said that many of those affected were practitioners of Falun Gong, a spiritual discipline that China banned in the 1990s and has called an evil cult. Those are uh, the people, by the way, who produced the Epic Times. If you have uh, heard of that news source, they are uh, the Falun Gong folks are the ones behind that. The tribunal added that it was possible that the Uyghur Muslims, an ethnic minority who are currently being detained in vast numbers in western China, were also being targeted. The tribunal is chaired by Sir Jeffrey Nice, who worked as a prosecutor at the International Tribunal for Crimes Committed in the former Yugoslavia. Falun Gong practitioners have been one and probably the main source of organ supply, the judgment read, while the concerted persecution and medical testing of the Uyghurs is more recent. It warned, however, that the scale of medical testing of the Uyghur Muslims meant that they could end up being used as an organ bank. The tribunal that delivered its judgment in London was initiated by the International Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China, a nonprofit coalition including lawyers, academics, human rights advocates, and medical professionals. Allegations of forced organ harvesting first came to light in 2001 after a boom in transplant activity was registered in China, with wait times becoming unusually short, the statement said. Chinese websites advertised hearts, lungs, and kidneys for sale, that is creepy, and available to book in advance, suggesting the victims were killed on demand, it added. On Monday, the tribunal concluded that there was numerical evidence of the impossibility of there being anything like sufficient eligible donors under the recently formed People Republic of China's Voluntary Donor Scheme for that number of transplant operations. The tribunal added that witnesses, experts, and investigators had told of how Falun Gong practitioners continued to be killed in order for their organs to be extracted. It added that forced organ harvesting was also being performed while victims are still alive, killing the person in the process. The statement recalled how one witness, Dr. Enver Todi, told of how, as a surgeon in China, he had been required to perform organ extractions. Referring to one instance in which he extracted an organ from a living patient, he said, What I recall is, with my scalpel, I tried to cut into his skin. There was blood to be seen. That indicates that the heart was still beating. At the same time, he was trying to resist my insertion, but he was too weak. Several survivors of prison camps told the tribunal of how they were subjected to physical examinations, including blood tests, x-rays, and ultrasounds, the statement said. Experts report that the only reasonable explanation for the examinations was to ensure that victims' organs were healthy and fit for transplantation, it added. A healthy liver, for example, can reportedly be sold for some $160,000, according to the statement. Hey, you can come get my liver right now. Uh, you can come take a section of it. I mean, if a whole one gets a hey, come get you like a third from your boy. I can live on two-thirds. You can have a third. And I will gladly, gladly take like $35,000. I'll do it. I'll do it right here. $35,000. Bring on the doctors. 
The tribunal concluded that it was beyond reasonable doubt that crimes against humanity had been committed against the Falun Gong and Uyghur Muslims, but they could not prove that the killing of the Falun Gong amounted to genocide because of the tribunal's inability to prove intent to commit genocide. So, genocide is probably happening, but we don't know that that's what they intended? Um, okay. In a statement accompanying the final judgment, the International Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China, that could probably have a better name, I'm just saying, called on the international community to help bring an end to forced organ extraction. It is no longer a question of whether organ harvesting in China is happening. That dialogue is well and truly over. We need an urgent response to save these people's lives, Susie Hughes, executive director and co-founder of the coalition, said. So... This is something that uh, actually was pointed out to me by a listener of our show, and I thought that it was bunk. I was like, there is no way. Uh, I already have heard about these prison camps and what is happening to the weaker Muslims in China, and I know that that doesn't get the outrage or the coverage that it deserves, but there is no way that China is taking people's organs without permission and even killing people just to get their organs and sell them. Like, th there's no way that this is happening. And I've never heard of it. I've never read a New York Times article. I've never seen it on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. There's no way that this can possibly be a real thing. Um, the article that I just read you does not come from some tabloid or conspiracy website. A, it's from ABC News. It's an ABC News article. And this is an international coalition that was put together to investigate the possibility that this was happening. And their conclusion is stark. This is a real thing that's happening in 2021 in one of the wealthiest nations on earth. And nobody's talking about it. Nobody's covering it. Nobody's saying anything. These are uh, gross, gross human rights violations. They're running tests on prisoners to make sure that their organs are good enough to harvest. They're putting people in prison camps, basically concentration camps because of their religious faith, because they're minority groups in their country, and they're taking their organs. This is a horror movie level stuff right here. Like, this is real life. These are people, and this is happening, and it's terrifying, and it's disgusting, and I don't understand how it's not getting more coverage. I don't understand how the conclusions of this coalition aren't front-page news and the leading story in all of these well-to-do newspapers. I haven't seen very many posts from so social justice warriors online about this. I haven't heard athletes or celebrities or politicians sounding off about this. I don't understand why not. Is it because China has such a stranglehold on our economy and such an influence on our economy? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to tell you. I'm just a man uh, in his shed at 11.22 at night on a Wednesday in Alabama. But it's some pretty freaky stuff. And it's some pretty unfortunate stuff. And it's something that should never be allowed to happen in our world today. It doesn't make sense that this is real. This is an actual thing. And the article even said that uh, China was not available to comment. Like they commented, they contacted the Chinese government like, hey... We're about to set out this report saying, this news article saying that you are harvesting people's organs against their will. What do you have to say? And China was like, mm, we ain't even got a comment. Who's going to stop us? And the article says that they said that they would make a voluntary registry. Uh, okay, sure you will. 
Sure you will. These are the type of news stories that we want to cover on this show, Bruce, because it's not being covered wall to wall. And it's important world news. And it should infuriate you and it should worry you and it should scare you. And it deserves coverage. Our next story in the world of politics, CNN fires Chris Cuomo for helping brother deal with scandal. CNN fired Chris Cuomo on Saturday less than a week after new information emerged about how he assisted his brother, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, as the politician faced sexual harassment allegations earlier this year. The network had suspended its primetime host on Tuesday to investigate his conduct after New York's Attorney General released details showing that he was more involved than previously known in helping to strategize and reach out to other journalists as his brother fought to keep his job. CNN hired a law firm for that review, which it would not identify. The lawyers recommended Chris Cuomo's termination, and CNN chief Jeff Zucker informed the anchor of the decision on Saturday. It goes without saying that these decisions are not easy, and there are a lot of complex factors involved, Zucker said in an email to CNN staff on Saturday. The network said that while in the process of that review, additional information has come to light, CNN would not discuss that information or characterize whether it had anything to do with his brother. Cuomo issued a statement on Twitter calling the decision disappointing. This is not how I want my time at CNN to end, but I've already told you why and how I helped my brother. So let me now say, as disappointing as this is, I could not be more proud of the team at Cuomo Primetime and the work that we did, he said. Even with the firing, CNN still said it will continue to investigate Cuomo's conduct as appropriate. A year ago, the two sons of the late New York Governor Mario Cuomo were flying high. Andrew, as a three-term governor, praised initially in many circles for his handling of the pandemic, and Chris as the top-rated personality on CNN. Now, they're both out of work. As women came forward accusing former Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment, his brother, despite being a CNN anchor, pressed sources for information on the accusers and reported back to the governor's staff on what he was learning. He was active in helping craft their response to the charges, according to emails, and a transcript of his testimony to investigators working for State Attorney General Letitia James. Her office found Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed at least 11 women. The former governor resigned in August to avoid a likely impeachment trial. Chris Cuomo and CNN have been under fire for months about their anchor's conduct. When it first came to light in May that the anchor had been talking to his brother's advisors, the network acknowledged that he had broken its rules. But as CNN said in a statement upon his suspension earlier this week, we also appreciate the unique position he was in and understood his need to put family first and job second. The transcripts released by James this week revealed considerably more detail about Cuomo's involvement, Conduct CNN executives admitted was a surprise even to them. While Cuomo has said he never tried to influence CNN's own coverage of his brother, he told investigators for James about his calls to other journalists to find out what information they had about some of his accusers. That seemed to conflict with an on-air statement that Cuomo gave on CNN following his brother's resignation in August. Cuomo had said that I never made calls to the press about my brother's situation. Cuomo also said that he never attacked nor encouraged anyone to attack any woman who came forward with accusations against his brother. According to email transcripts released this week, Cuomo wrote to aides that I have a lead on one of the accusers, although it was not clear what he meant. Things moved quickly this week following the release of the transcripts. CNN took him off the air on Tuesday and suspended him indefinitely before the firing on Saturday. It was clearly a painful decision for Zucker, who installed Cuomo as a morning show host shortly after taking over at CNN in 2013, then later moved him to primetime. 
Until this week, he had backed Cuomo despite criticism. Cuomo Primetime had been the network's highest-rated show this year, airing at the 9 p.m. Eastern hour before shows by Anderson Cooper and Don Lemon. The firing leaves a significant hole in the network's schedule. There was always a potential of conflict with one Cuomo brother as governor and another as a journalist. But since Chris Cuomo joined CNN, it was always made clear that he would not cover anything that involved his brother. That changed with the COVID-19 pandemic when the governor appeared on his brother's show several times, trading familial banter that entertained viewers, but also raised ethical red flags. So, we about to be on some Inception type stuff right here. We going Leo DiCaprio with this one. Um, Because we are a news show who in covering this story... Uh, we are covering a news organization, um, a news show, a guerrilla news show, a different type of news show, uh, independent from a shed in the middle of the night in Alabama type news show. But nonetheless, a news show. Uh, Twitter poll a few months ago proved that I am, in fact, a journalist. And um, this is an important news story that I thought, uh, a developing story that I thought worth covering on our show tonight. When I first put together uh, this episode and the things that I would cover, uh, Chris Cuomo had been suspended indefinitely by CNN for his actions after State Attorney General Letitia James kind of made it clear that he had in fact intervened on behalf of his brother, used his connections to do so. Um, And things quickly took a turn. Things quickly changed. A lot has happened since then. At first, CNN um, stood by Chris Cuomo and said that uh, this certainly deserves investigation and suspension. He clearly was in the wrong. But we also understand that he uh, has a family and that you have to put family first. Like, okay, um, all right. At that time, uh, there were news reports already out from other organizations that uh, other anchors and folks that worked for CNN uh, had been upset for some time at the abuse of power that Chris Cuomo, the conflict of interest that he had uh, exerted, and that they wanted something done. And then there was also, also not mentioned in this article, but also an additional Me Too complaint or accusation that has uh, been aimed not at brother, but at Chris Cuomo. And uh, that may or may not have something to do with this decision as well. At first, we were hearing that even though he was suspended indefinitely, that you could expect Chris Cuomo, who was CNN's top ratings getter, to be back on the air as early as January 1. And now he is in the unemployment line next to Billy Bob. Um, Apparently, this was quite a surprise and a shock to Chris Cuomo. Uh, I think that he thought he was probably unfireable, and he's not. Since being fired, Chris Cuomo has also left his Sirius XM radio show and is now uh, at least mulling over, if not already decided, to take legal action against CNN, and he is trying to recover the rest of the money on his contract, which is an astounding $18 million. So this is quite a situation for CNN. A news organization that has hemorrhaged viewers uh, since the election that um, is struggling in a lot of the time slots. And this is a time slot that they were actually doing pretty well on air talent that they did not want to move on from, but likely uh, just were left without much of a choice in this situation. Um, No question what Chris Cuomo did in intervening on behalf of his brother on the one hand is somewhat understandable, right? If we're keeping it a buck, if we're being honest, like you 
do what you have to in most instances to protect family. And especially if he thinks that his brother has been accused of things that he is not guilty of, it makes sense that he might use his connections to try and defend his brother and come through for him. However, however, his actions were also not justifiable and were beyond the pale and are just kind of gross. If you are a journalist, and I am a journalist after all, um, you have to act like a journalist. You have to be fair. You have to cover the news. You can't be saying one thing on air and then running behind the scenes trying to positively influence the narrative and uh, to cover up media stories and to put a positive spin on things that are not positive. And that's what Chris Cuomo was doing. He had his hand in the cookie jar and he got caught. And CNN moved on and they fired the man. And probably uh, this will end up with some type of monetary settlement. They'll give him a portion of the money that he's owed because they don't want this to go to court. If this goes to court, then CNN, uh, it will become clear how much they knew and when they knew it. That will be public record, which they do not want, I am guessing. But I also don't think that they would be responsible for paying everything that they owe to Chris Cuomo because... Um, All of these contracts have a morality clause, and he is certainly in violation of that. So what do I make of this? Uh, While it is understandable to try and defend your family and to come through for your sibling, uh, I would defend mines at all costs. Uh, Don't touch one of mines, or I will take everything you own. Um, You got to be better than this. And you can't, you just can't behave in this manner and expect there not to be repercussions or consequences for your actions. And Chris Cuomo is not above that, and he has learned that the hard way. And uh, you actually have to give CNN credit, even if they didn't want to do the right thing. Uh, their hand was forced, and at the end of the day, Jeff Zucker had to make a tough call in this situation and move on from his top talent and someone that he has a deep personal friendship with, or I should say, had a deep personal friendship with. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see what CNN does, who they choose to fill that time slot, how they move on. Um, And what will this do for uh, the public's view of CNN? They've lost a lot of public trust in their coverage in the last year and a half or two years. And I imagine that this won't help very much. Um, I remember when Andrew Cuomo was being praised and winning Emmys and lying about the number of deaths in nursing homes. And coming on his brother's new show to do so, and it was weird. And they would laugh and joke and banter, and I couldn't help but think, man, this is entertaining and inappropriate. And and they had to put a stop to that. And uh, this is just another example of people who think that the rules are for everybody but themselves. And at the end of the day, uh, both Cuomos are having to live with the consequences of their actions and the decisions that they made, as we all do. And it's a tough lesson to learn, but A, you're an adult. You're a grown-up, and it's time to act like it. So um, I guess we could give some level of kudos to CNN for doing the right thing, even if it took them a while to do it. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with Chris Cuomo. Uh, I'm sure at some point he will go on a redemption tour. He will find a new landing spot. And uh, will his viewers go with him? Will people still care to hear what he has to say? Or will they just tune in to End the Show with Wes Anderson instead? Will they find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher? And will they say, hey, I trust the guy in his shed at midnight in Alabama. And that's where I'm getting my news. That's what my vote is. Tune in to us instead. We'll give it to you straight. We'll cover the news. And we'll even cover those who cover the news. (laughs) Because that's just how we roll, America.
Our next story in the world of politics, Bill Gates is reportedly the largest farmland owner in America. That's right. I bet you ain't know that Big Willie getting down like that, but he owning lots of farmland. Let's learn about it together. Bill Gates may no longer be the world's richest man, but he can claim a new title, America's Farmland King. The billionaire Microsoft co-founder has become the largest owner of farmland in the United States by quietly buying up massive plots across the country, a new report says. Gates' portfolio comprises about 242,000 acres of farmland and nearly 27,000 acres of other land across 19 states, according to The Land Report, a magazine for land investors that tracks the nation's biggest landowners. The biggest chunks of Gates' holdings are in Louisiana and Arkansas, where he owns 69,000 and 47,000 acres respectively, the outlet's research found. He also reportedly owns about 16,000 acres in his home state of Washington, including a 14,500-acre tract in the Horse Heaven Hills region that was purchased for nearly $171 million. And that's just chump change to that man. That's just chump change. $171 million would be like $35 and a couple of nickels for your boy. The land is owned both directly and indirectly by Cascade Investment, the Seattle-area firm that Gates, the world's third richest man with a net worth of $132 billion, according to Bloomberg, set up to manage his massive fortune, according to the Land Report. A hint at Gates' huge farm holdings emerged in a 2014 Wall Street Journal profile of Michael Larson, the money manager who serves as Cascade's chief investment officer. The piece noted that the firm owns at least 100,000 acres of farmland in California, Illinois, Iowa, Louisiana, and other states, or an area seven times bigger than Manhattan. It's uncertain why Gates has invested in so much farmland or how his tracks are currently being used. Cascade did not immediately respond to a phone message Friday, and the company declined to comment to the land report other than to say that Cascade is very supportive of sustainable farming, the outlet said. Agriculture is also a key focus area for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the massive charity run by Gates and his wife, or now his soon-to-be ex-wife. The foundation aims to support country-led inclusive agricultural transformation across sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, according to its website, which means what exactly? While Gates is America's biggest farmland owner, he's far from being the nation's largest landowner in general. That crown belongs to Liberty Media chairman John Malone, who has 2.2 million acres, according to the Land Report. So, this is another story that I thought was newsworthy, um, mainly because it is something that very few people are aware of, and that I've never heard discussed anywhere other than um, on fringe conspiracy websites and podcasts, and media sources. And this article is not one of those sources, by the way. And I find it to be interesting. Uh, Bill Gates, who is the third richest man in the world, is quietly buying up a whole lot of farmland across our country. And why? What are his purposes? What is he doing with those farm with that farmland? How is it being used? Um, his charity talks about sustainable farming. And I just don't see Bill Gates as much of a farmer or someone who employs very many farmers. And uh, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, what is it that he is trying to control? What is it that owning this land 
does for him exactly. How is it an asset? It's not for the real estate. This is farmland. This is rural land. This is not for commercial purposes. What type of leverage is he trying to maintain and why? And those might sound like um, some conspiratorial type questions, but hey, I want to know. I want to know what he's up to. I want to know what his plans are. Like, you just trying to have like a lot of fields for your horses? How many horses you got, Billy? What you trying to do with all this farmland? Do you want to be the one that provides all of the food for everybody? Is there some legitimate charitable aim that I am somehow unaware of and missing that was not listed in this article? Or, 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 is this more about some type of control or profiteering um, that such purchases usually are about when it comes to people that are worth $132 billion? Usually somebody worth that much money is not investing $100 million in something unless they're expecting quite a return or unless it gives them access to things that they don't have access to otherwise, or empowers them in a way that they wish to be empowered. And look, I'm all for if you earn your money, you can spend it how you want. This is a free country. It is a capitalistic country. But to me, if I'm being honest, it's also a little bit creepy that one person in our country owns so much farmland. It doesn't exactly match up with the rest of his portfolio. And it's a little bit of a head-scratcher. It's a little bit intriguing. It's a little bit interesting to me. And I think it's something that is worth noting and that maybe we should have some questions about that I would love to hear some explanation for. Uh, Maybe you have the answer and I do not. Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com and let me know what is Bill Gates up to with all this farmland. What is he trying to do? The man just want to grow a whole lot of corn. He looking to have... uh, A whole lot of fields to grow some green beans and some watermelons and some different things that he can feed people with. How is this uh, helping farming become more sustainable in America for you to own so much of it? Like, what's going on here? What's the deal? It's curious. I'm curious. And I want to know. I want to know what you're up to, Bill Gates. And I'm just saying, if you want to throw me a couple acres, like you got you got 200 and whatever it was, acre, you want to throw your boy like maybe 10, 12 acres, I'm not, I'm not going to hate it. I won't even judge you, Bill. You be giving a charity, hey, give me some acreage. I'll have you in the shed. We'll have you on the podcast. Give your boy some acreage. But otherwise, I want to, I want to know what you're up to with all of it, what you're doing with 220 plus acres of land. Is that how much it was, 220,000 acres? It's a lot. Bill Gates has more farmland in this country than anyone else. And to me, that's a little bit unsettling. And I want to know how you feel about it. Get, get at us on Twitter at in the shed 4 Email us at InTheShedWithWest at gmail.com and let us know. Our last story in the world of politics, Florida man bites off another man's ear during vacation fight in the Keys. That's right. We go into the Florida Keys because why would we not? This is a news show. You want to know why I'm covering certain things, Bruce? Why I'm not covering other things? Well, hey, we got a Florida man story just for you. Florida man bites off another man's ear during vacation fight in the Keys. A Florida man has been charged with attacking another man during a vacation stay at a Florida hotel. On Thursday, James Lynn Williams of Port St. Lucie was arrested and charged with aggravated battery, battery by strangulation, and two additional counts of battery. That's a whole lot of batteries. That man got triple A's. He ready to go. 
James Williams, some Energizer Bunny type stuff right here. Williams was staying at Ocean's Edge Resort and Marina on Stock Island. Uh, it is unfortunate that their name was included in this article. This is not the type of press that you would like to have. With two friends, which comprised of one man and two women. Again, a strange uh, detail to include, but okay. I digress. Williams allegedly was pushing one of the women who was unconscious in a maintenance barrel toward their hotel room. <laughs> it says Williams was allegedly pushing one of the women who was unconscious in a maintenance barrel toward their hotel room. And I have so many questions. What is a maintenance barrel? Why was she unconscious? What were your intentions, Mr. Williams? This is an interesting start to this article. While pushing her, Williams started throwing beer and insulting her. That's not very gentlemanly. Williams' friend, a 28-year-old man, stepped in and tried to defuse the situation. Williams then started fighting with a group of friends and pushed the other woman to the ground. He then bit off part of the male victim's ear, according to authorities. He just went straight up Mike Tyson on his 28-year-old friend. The 28-year-old victim was taken to a local hospital to treat his injuries. So this man on vacation, and uh, you're supposed to be more, you're supposed to be more relaxed on vacation, but apparently this man is on edge. And I don't know what activities he had been up to prior in the evening. I could take a couple of guesses, but he was pushing an unconscious lady toward a hotel room and whatever in the world a maintenance barrel is, and he started throwing beer and calling names. And his buddy tries to step in to defuse things. Apparently, they were not as good of friends as the one man thought because he got pushed to the ground and his ear got partially bitten off by this man with some very strong teeth. Um, this man must have drank his milk and brushed his teeth three or four times a day because his teeth were strong. He just he went right into that cartilage and took it off Mike Tyson style. What a terrible vacation for this 28-year-old man. He on vacation with some of his friends and he ended up in the hospital with half a ear. His hearing is slightly better than Helen Keller's. That's unfortunate. <laughs> you see all kind of Florida man stories. This one might take the cake. And uh, this is the type of coverage you will only find on In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land. This is in uh, the field of politics because why would it not be? We covering Florida man biting people's ear. And uh, I just hope that this unnamed 28-year-old man had proper medical coverage for the things that he has experienced. Not a shark bite, not an animal attack, but his intoxicated or possibly drug-induced buddy who is pushing a lady who is unconscious in a maintenance barrel toward the hotel room. And I find it interesting that the, the point in which he intervened, this man whose ear was bitten off, was when beer started to be thrown and insults were uh, directed at this unconscious lady. Not... He didn't intervene when this man was pushing an unconscious lady in a maintenance barrel. He did not intervene when this man got to the point of intoxication or drug-induced furor. No. It was when beer was thrown and insults were made. That was one step too far. <laughs> Only in Florida. And that is the news in the world of politics for this week. That's all for the world of politics. Let's switch to the news in the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman named Notre Dame head football coach. MLB lockout imminent as talks end in only seven minutes. 
College football playoff board again unable to agree on playoff expansion. Bam Adebayo to miss four to six weeks for surgery on injured thumb. Bulls and Heat each lose second-round draft picks for Lonzo Lowry trade infractions. LeBron James has entered the health and safety protocol and will be out until at least Tuesday. In NCAA men's basketball, top-ranked Duke loses to unranked Ohio State. And Ohio State quarterback C.J. Stroud has been named Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year. In promoting this week's show, we said that we would talk some NCAA basketball, and we certainly will. But with everything that's happened in the world of college football in the last week or two, we have to start there. Uh, Some shocking news in the world of the college coaching carousel has happened in the last couple weeks. Lincoln Riley is leaving Oklahoma and is now the head coach at USC. Uh, Brian Kelly to LSU. Uh, Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. A lot of things going on. And let's start with Lincoln Riley deciding to leave Oklahoma and to go out to California to coach USC. Uh, This was uh, shocking news we have been covering. USC's search for a new head football coach after moving on from the very, very average Clay Helton. And uh, Lincoln Riley was never a name that was attached to this coaching search at all. It it surprised everyone. It came out of the blue, and he is now the the man to lead the Trojans uh, back to glory, they hope. And in my eyes, this was a phenomenal hire for USC. Um, A lot of people have been raking Lincoln Riley over the coals, saying that with Oklahoma's impending move to the SEC that he just wanted to avoid competition. Um, They've said that he always said that Oklahoma was a dream job, that he didn't have interest in other schools. But A, let's be realistic. Like This was a no-brainer for Lincoln Riley. USC is just heads and tails a better job at this point in time than Oklahoma. Granted, Oklahoma has been a mainstay in the college football playoffs. Might not have had the success they wish they had, but hey, they've been there. And they're top 10 in recruiting every year. They're a fantastic program, but they're also getting ready to move into a much more competitive conference in the SEC. And for Lincoln Riley to go to a program like USC that is prestigious, that has been there before, but also is is been down for a few years and has not experienced the success that they're used to and is in need of, of someone to revitalize the program. It makes a lot of sense. USC, who in the Pac-12, they only have to overcome, what, Oregon? Win a non-conference game against Notre Dame in order to have a legitimate shot to make the playoffs. I told you a few episodes ago that if USC were to hit a home run in their coaching search that they could be a 10-win team next year. And I legitimately believe that. And I think that Lincoln Riley is the type of coach that can make that happen because he's the type of coach that's going to make sure they have a top-notch offense. He's the type of coach that's going to set their recruiting back to where it belongs. And I mean, he's going to have an easy time at USC when it comes to recruiting. All he has to do is get in the car and drive an hour Either direction, he's going to find enough four, enough four and five-star prospects to fill out his roster. And I look today, and USC's like not even in the top 50 in team recruiting with the early signing period about to end. And yet I wouldn't be surprised if they pulled off a top 30 recruiting class this year 
and next year wound up in the top 10 again. That's how much talent there is in the state of California. And you look at his contract that he was offered. It's a no-brainer. A $100 million contract. They bought both of his houses in Oklahoma for $500,000 over asking price just as a bonus. They provided a $6.5 million home in Los Angeles for he and his family. And, and, as icing on the cake, they were like, hey, you and your family will have use of our private jet whenever you deem it necessary. Like, hey, sign me, sign me up for that package. I'm on my way to Los Angeles. So, Lincoln Riley had a good job at Oklahoma. Oklahoma is undoubtedly one of the top 10 football programs in the country. He did very well there. He didn't win a national championship, but he was a fantastic coach for Oklahoma. But also, he kind of inherited a top-tier program from Bob Stoops. Bob Stoops, who had already won a national championship at Oklahoma. And even though USC has been to the promised land multiple times in the world of college football, it's been a while. And their program is pretty down. And they're pretty bad this year. And this is an opportunity for Lincoln Riley to make his own way. And to bring a a program back to prominence that hasn't been there in a while. And to make his imprint on college football. And to get paid. To get paid. So I don't think it's fair to these people who are crushing Lincoln Riley saying that he's scared of competition or that he... Blah, 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 SEC, he's scared. No, no, like he's making bank. He has a chance to elevate his family for generations. And he has a chance to do things his own way. I happen to think it's a good move for Lincoln Riley. And I think it was a home run hire for USC, one that I did not see coming. I did not see coming. Oklahoma has since named their replacement for Lincoln Riley, and that is... Clemson defensive coordinator Brent Venerables, who has had opportunities um, to become a head coach for the last several years, has turned those opportunities down. He now has picked his spot and called his shot, and he's the head coach at Oklahoma. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know. He has ties to Oklahoma. He was uh, part of the staff on the defensive side there before, and uh, we don't really know how this is going to go. Brent Venerables is a disciplined coach. He has a very good reputation defensively, in which Oklahoma has struggled in recent years. Um, He's already named his offensive coordinator, which is Jeff Lebby from uh, Ole Miss uh, and Lane Kiffin's staff. That's a huge coup for him to get him, uh, him to get him. I think that's a great hire. Uh, It may be that they pair very well together. I don't expect Oklahoma to skip a beat in the Big 12 Uh, We'll see how things go as they move towards becoming an SEC program. And it will be interesting to see how Ole Miss's offenses uh, progress in the coming years without Jeff Lebby at the helm, um, just relying on Lane Kiffin. How much of it was Lane Kiffin? How much of it was Jeff Lebby? But if Lincoln Riley to USC was not enough of a surprise, a day or two later we had Brian Kelly to LSU. And this was quite a surprise. Um, I did not hear anything about Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame. 
Uh, a few weeks prior, he had been asked, and his response was, it would take a fairy godmother backing up $200 million to my doorstep. And LSU came through with $95 million, and Brian Kelly said, that is close enough. <laughs> Um, Brian Kelly gets a bad rap, uh, partially because he does not appear to be the best person morally. Um, he's made some tough decisions at Notre Dame, and he may have been responsible for a student manager's death on a windy day. But when it comes to the realm of football coaching, Brian Kelly is without a doubt a good football coach. Um, he is either Notre Dame's most winning coach in history or second. I can't recall which one he is. He might have passed Newt Rockney in that regard. But he's had a lot of success at Notre Dame. He's put them in the playoffs. He's won 10 and 11 games almost every single year. And even this year, with Notre Dame breaking in a new quarterback, losing a lot of players on the defensive side of the football, they lost the one game to Cincinnati, and since then they have just been an improved football team week to week, and they have finished the season at 11-1. and And it might have been his best coaching job in South Bend. And uh, now he's jumping to LSU. you got to figure that this is just a situation uh, somewhat similar to Lincoln Riley's, but also a little bit different. Um, a, the money is certainly a factor. $95 million is nothing to sneeze at. I will do whatever you want for $95 million. Um, you name it, and hey, I am there. You sign me to a $95 million contract, I'll clean your bathroom with a toothbrush. Um, I'll do whatever you want. I'm just saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. The money is a factor. But also, you have to figure that part of it is um, that Brian Kelly is no spring chicken. And... I think that part of this is that Brian Kelly just kind of figured that he had hit his ceiling at Notre Dame, that he had accomplished all he could accomplish, that he could go 10-2, and 11-1. He could even get Notre Dame to the playoffs uh, every other year, every couple of years, um, but that he had accomplished what he could accomplish. And if he goes to LSU, yes, he is now coaching against Nick Saban, like in his division. And yes, he's in the toughest conference in the nation, but also... Also, he can recruit with much, much less effort and get the same, if not better, results ultimately. Um, Louisiana has tremendous high school football programs. LSU does not have other in-state programs to recruit against. Sometimes Texas, Texas A&M, or Alabama come in and get one or two players. But he can pretty much put a fence around the state of Louisiana and get most of his talent. He can go over into Texas and poach a few guys there. And he doesn't have to put up with the academic or other structures in place like he did in Notre Dame. Um, he can recruit at a whole nother level at LSU. And he gets a chance to match wits with some of the best coaches in the nation. So uh, Brian Kelly's probably looking at LSU. He sees all of the money uh, for sure. But he also sees an opportunity to do something he's never done before, and that's have expectations and compete year in and year out for a championship at a different level than even he had at Notre Dame, one of the best programs in the history of college football. And uh, he's, he probably looks at LSU and says, if Ed Ogeron and Les Miles can win a national championship each at LSU, the last three coaches at LSU have all won national championships. What can I do? What can I do there? I want to go there. I want to collect my paycheck. I want to have a, a chance to compete. 
um, with the best coaches in the country to have more talent on my roster head to toe than I ha- ever have had in my career. And uh, that's what he's going to have at LSU. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see a lot of national pundits have already said that this is not a fit. They questioned the fit of Brian Kelly to LSU. They don't think that it's a match. Um, I'm hearing a lot of people say that LSU swung for the fences and might have hit a foul ball. That maybe even though Brian Kelly is a good football coach, that he might not be the coach for LSU. And I I don't know about that. I don't know if I buy that. Um, I don't think he's going to step into LSU and have them contending for a championship next season. I think they have a a year or two at least to kind of get things in position to compete for a national championship there. Um, But I don't think this is a disaster. And I think LSU could have done a lot worse. I think they had had options on the table that were starting to kind of thin out um, with all the, the coaching hires, Billy Napier to Florida and other coaches off the table. I kind of thought maybe they would uh, go after a Lane Kiffin. That did not materialize, and uh, I actually look forward to seeing what Brian Kelly in the SEC looks like, especially in the SEC West. Like, what does that look like? How does that play out? And I think Notre Dame did the right thing. Notre Dame decided to elevate defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman to become the next head coach, and uh, look, he's a young coach. Uh, He's a talented defensive coordinator, um, he's got the pedigree, and I think they, they're not going to skip a beat in recruiting. I think that he's a, a coach that players can um, get excited to play for, and I, I expect that Notre Dame will kind of maintain their positioning. I, I'm excited that Marcus Freeman got the opportunity. Uh, a lot of talk about Luke Fickle and others as possible next coaches, and I'm just glad that they went with Marcus Freeman. So we got Lincoln Riley to USC, Brian Kelly to LSU, two surprises there. And then you even had Mario Cristobal leaving Oregon to go to Miami. And, you know, he went home. Um, He's familiar with Miami is Mario Cristobal. He's been there before. He recruits very well in South Florida, even as the head coach of Oregon. And uh, Mario Cristobal has done well at Oregon. Um... But it was a curious move, even even in coming home was a curious move to me because Oregon is a much better job at this point in time than Miami. And uh, I, if I were in his shoes, I do not know that I would have taken that job, no matter what the, the money looked like, no matter the situation. Um, he had a good thing going at Oregon, and uh, now he's in a complete rebuild at Miami. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what Oregon does now. Do they go back to Chip Kelly? Do they look to, to reunite uh, Chip Kelly with Oregon and try to reclaim the magic that they had when he was there just as he starts to get things going at UCLA? Or will they start over again? Will they try to find a new coach again? A lot happening in the coaching carousel. I even want to take a look at my Auburn Tigers who have fired their their offensive coordinator, I almost said head coach, ooh, who have fired their offensive coordinator, Mike Bobo, after his very first season at the helm on the Plains. They've had five players in the transfer portal already, including Ladarius Tennyson, running back Sean Shivers, and offensive lineman to Sean Manning. And the question now is what will happen with their two offensive stars, quarterback Bo Nix and running back Tank Bixby? There is a lot of question about what Bo Nix will do. It's rumored that he may be considering transfer. He might be in the portal. And maybe the 
firing of Mike Bobo might have something to do with this? Is it a reason that pushes him towards the portal? Or is it a Hail Mary to try and keep him? Um, Brian Harson is up against it. He just finished his first year as, as head coach, and he's already up against it. Auburn went 6-6. Six and six. They were uh, looking good at 6-2 and two and in contention for the SEC West crown, and they lost four games in a row. And I'm not upset about the Iron Bowl. I'm not. I'm not upset. Auburn played their hearts out with a backup quarterback, a walk-on left-footed kicker, and almost beat the number one team in the country. If they knew how to run out of the clock, and if Mike Bobo had called a couple plays different, they might have won the game. But they played their hearts out, and they outplayed Alabama for most of that game. So Brian Harsin, uh, he's he's up against it at 6-6. Six and six. A bowl game against Houston in Birmingham, which Auburn could very easily lose. And it's a question on whether or not his starting quarterback will come back for his senior year or possibly enter the NFL draft for some reason or the transfer portal. We will learn a lot about the viability of Brian Harson as head coach at Auburn based on who he hires as offensive coordinator and whether or not Bo Nix and Tank Bixby return to Auburn or transfer. Uh, my top choice, if I had to pick for Auburn for offensive coordinator, would be Georgia running back coach Dale McGee, who is an Auburn alumni and one of the top recruiters in the country. Uh, pay the man. Pay the man. Make him one of the top paid offensive coaches in the country. Bring him over back to the Plains. Bring him home. He will help you on the recruiting trail where you are currently 34th in the nation and 13th in the SEC, which is not going to cut it. So, yeah, so much happening in the world of college football, especially in the coaching carousel. And now we have our college football playoff. Alabama ranked number one, Michigan second, Georgia third, and Cincinnati fourth. Alabama, of course, dominating Georgia in the SEC championship game. I kind of thought that that would happen. I, I really did. Once once Auburn blew it in the Iron Bowl and could not close out Alabama, I turned to my father, who I watched the game with, and I said, and now, since Auburn has blown it, Alabama will dominate Georgia and be the number one ranked team and probably win a national championship. And uh, that remains to be seen, but Alabama is ranked number one after their dominating performance. Michigan beat the the stew out of Iowa in their championship game, their second. Georgia is third. They've been the best team all year up until the SEC championship. And thank you, Lord, Cincinnati has made the playoffs. Cincinnati has made the playoffs. The committee tried so hard. If Oklahoma State had won, you know that the committee would have left Cincinnati out. But Cincinnati has made the playoffs, and I am so thankful. And their reward is that they get to play Alabama in the first round. They get to face Nick Saban. Um, Lord be with you, Luke Fickle, in that game. Um, I don't have too much complaints with the playoffs and the final rankings of the committee. Honestly, my personal opinion, I would have loved to have seen a rematch of Alabama and Georgia in the semifinal game. Just because I think for both teams to be in the same conference and to have just played, you know, I would like to see that rematch earlier rather than later. Give other teams a chance to make the championship game. Um, I think that Georgia should have dropped to number four and played Alabama and then Michigan and Cincinnati. But it is what it is, and I understand the committee's rankings. I do have Alabama number one also, 
And uh, I mean, Cincinnati, you have you have made the tournament. You get your chance, and uh, you got to play the big boys. So good luck with with that. Um, so I will give you our in the shed with West top twenty five rankings. This is our last top twenty five rankings um, before the playoffs begin and the bowl games. And this is how we had things slightly different than the playoff committee. We had Alabama number one, Michigan number two, Cincinnati number three. Georgia number four, Notre Dame five, Baylor six, Ole Miss seven, Ohio State eight, Utah ninth, Pittsburgh tenth, Oklahoma State eleventh, BYU twelve, Michigan State thirteen, Louisiana fourteen, UTSA fifteenth, Oklahoma sixteenth, Oregon seventeenth, Clemson eighteenth, Kentucky nineteenth, Iowa 20th, Houston 21st, Coastal Carolina 22nd, Texas A&M 23rd, Utah State 24th, and Wake Forest 25th. Um, Unfortunately, in our In the Shed with Wes solid 7, we're down to 40% correct on the year. Um, (laughs) We've had some rough weeks, my tools. Uh... As you know, we've been doing the end of the shed with West Solid 7 where we pick seven college football games. We go against the spread every week, week in and week out. We got off to a rough start the first couple weeks. We were at 28% overall. Our goal on the year was 53%. And then we had seven or eight weeks in a row that were winning weekends. And we were up to 51%. And we were feeling good. And then one weekend we went 0-7. And one weekend we went one and six. And another weekend we went two and five. And now we're down to 40% on the year. Probably not going to get to that 53% overall. (laughs) We're still going to try, though. We're going to give it the old college try. We're going to predict every one of the bowl games and the playoff games. And we're going to see where we stand. Maybe we will have uh, a good showing and we will rebound. Or maybe we will crash and burn and wish that we had not picked those games. But we are at 40% overall in the year so far. And uh, hey, we're going to do our best and see where we stand. Moving on from college football, let's take a quick look at the NBA standings. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit of basketball, mostly focusing on college basketball, but in the NBA, in the NBA East, it is the Nets with the number one overall record in the East, followed by the Wizards, the Bucks, the Bulls at fourth, the Heat at fifth, the Cavaliers at sixth, the Hawks at seventh, and the Celtics at eighth. And in the West, the Suns have the best record overall, followed by the Warriors, the Jazz, the Mavericks, the Grizzlies, the Clippers, the Lakers at 7th, and the Blazers at 8th overall. Now turning to the world of college basketball, and let's take you around the SEC. This is what things look like so far. LSU's men's basketball team is 8-0 on the year. Arkansas stands at 7-0. Texas A&M is 7-1. Alabama, Kentucky, Auburn, and Florida are all 6-1, while Mississippi State, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt stand at 5-1. Ole Miss and South Carolina are 5-2, and and Missouri is 4-3 on the year. With Georgia and head coach Tom Crean, the only team in the league with a losing record, currently standing at 3-5. 
The top 10 in men's college basketball looks like this. Number one, Duke. Number two, Purdue. Number three, Gonzaga. Number four, Baylor. Number five, UCLA. Number six, Villanova. Number seven, Texas. Number eight, Kansas. Number nine, Kentucky. And number 10, Arkansas. I want to give you quickly four teams to watch this year in college basketball. Last year, we gave you four teams to watch, and two of them wound up making the final four, and that was pretty cool. So these are our four teams to watch this year in college basketball. We are eight to ten games in, and these are the teams that are standing out to us thus far. Uh, the first is number 21 ranked Auburn. The Tigers are 6-1 and one on the year, with their only loss coming in double overtime to UConn, a game in which they were without their best player. Auburn features super freshman Jabari Smith, along with transfers Walker Kessler, guards Katie Johnson, Zepp Jasper, and Wendell Green Jr. to go along with returning starters Jalen Williams, Devon Cambridge, Dylan Cardwell, and others. Uh, Auburn hasn't even gotten Alan Flanagan back, who is a SEC second team player. And of course, they have head coach Bruce Pearl. Auburn plays an exciting brand of basketball. Um, They play good defense, they move the ball well, they shoot from the outside, and they've got athletes all over the floor. Auburn is a team to watch on the year. Our second team to watch is number 10, Arkansas, who is 7-0 on the year with wins over Kansas State and Cincinnati already. Arkansas and head coach Eric Musselman made the Elite Eight last year. They did lose their top six scores from last year's team, but returned senior guard J.D. Note and Devontae Davis, as well as six key transfers who fill out their roster. Uh, Arkansas is a team that has rebuilt well. They've uh, reloaded and restocked. They play great full-court defense, and uh, they're a team that I think can go far in this year's tournament. The third team to watch on our list is the Iona Gales. Yes, the Iona Gales. Uh, they are a Mid-Atlantic Athletic Conference team. They're 7-2. and two. They already have an upset win over Alabama, and they're coached by Rick Patino. In a shortened season, they went 12-6 and six last year, including a conference tournament title and NCAA berth. They returned two starters to their team. Um, and any team that's coached by Rick Patino and that has some uh, key players returning to their team is a team to watch. I expect big things from Iona this year. The fourth team on our list is the St. Bonaventure Bonnies from the Atlantic 10 Conference. The Bonnies are 6-1 with wins over Boise State, Clemson, and Marquette. Last season, they were regular season and tournament champions in their conference and reached their 8th NCAA tournament berth. But their goals are higher this year as they return 5 senior starters. And I'm expecting big things from St. Bonaventure. I think that they can be a sleeper team. Those are our four teams to watch this year in NCAA basketball. Number 21, Auburn. Number 10, Arkansas. The Iona Gales and St. Bonaventure. And I look forward to seeing how those teams progress as the year goes on. Uh, Last year, we were pretty accurate in giving you four teams to watch. Uh, So pay attention to those teams this season. We'll have continued coverage as the season progresses. That's all in the world of sports. Let's now move to the world of the paranormal. For our first story in the world of the paranormal, we go to the state of Georgia. Georgia judge bans elf on the shelf. 
It's a Christmas story, my tools. Jesus is the reason for the season, my babies. When it comes to holiday traditions, there are few more divisive than the elf on the shelf. For some parents, it's a fun way to engage with their children and help ensure good behavior. For others, it's a headache that causes some awkward moments with their children. Now, a Georgia judge is offering a reprieve. Judge Robert D. Leonard of the Superior Court of Cobb County posted an order on Twitter banishing the elf on the shelf in his county. The tongue-in-cheek and completely unenforceable order addresses the concerns of parents whose children are traumatized when the parents forget to move the elf before they go to bed at night. Inexplicably, elves sometimes move and don't move overnight. When those elves do not move, it leaves our children of tender years in states of extreme emotional distress, Leonard's order reads. The undersigned recalls a horrific incident in his own house where three children were sent to school in tears, with one child being labeled an elf murderer and accused of making the elf lose his magic. The court has no doubt the day of education was lost to everyone. In his tweet unveiling the order, Leonard says in part, Tired of living in elf-on-the-shelf tyranny? I am a public servant and will take the heat for you. My gift to tired parents. The judge isn't launching a war on Christmas with the order, though. He adds that anyone who enjoys the tradition should feel free to welcome the elf into their home as usual. P.S. If you love your elf, keep your elf. No contempts, he said. Since its launch in 2005, the Christmas tradition has snowballed from poem to multi-million dollar franchise, including a TV special and a balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I completely support this judge's order, and (laughs) I think the elf on the shelf should be outlawed in every county and in every city throughout this great nation of ours. Um, I do not support the elf on the shelf. I think that it is crazy and terrifying and creepy and teaches your children to misbehave. So, hey, be mad at me if you want. Flood my inbox with your emails in the shed with Wes at gmail.com. But I am not a fan of the elf on the shelf. The elf will not be on my shelf. He does not belong in my home, okay? We celebrate Christmas. We are um, in favor of the season. And we decorate. And we have traditions in our family. We do things with our children. But teaching them that this little elf is moving from place to place causing mischief and watching over them is not one of the things that we teach in our house. Papa Bear don't play that game. Elf on the shelf? Mm, Not over here. Not over here, he's not. So this this judge from Georgia is uh, my hero, and I stand with you, sir. Even if your order was completely tongue-in-cheek and a joke, Um, I think you should enforce it nationally. (laughs) Because Elf on the Shelf is not for us. And uh, if it is for you, then I question your parenting. Um, That's fine. If you want to do it, hey. If if your children enjoy that and you like to do it, then you just, you do you, okay? You parent your children how you see fit. I will parent mine's. And minds will be more well-adjusted because they're not looking toward this elf for guidance. I'm just saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> elf on the shelf. Uh, banned in the state of Georgia or at least in this man's county. 
For our next story, we go to the world of television. Rob Zombie reveals first look at the Munsters reboot cast. We finally have our first look at the Munsters reboot cast. On Instagram, director Rob Zombie has posted some new images that officially confirms three of the new movie's cast members. Jeff Daniel Phillips as Herman Munster, Sherry Moon Zombie as Lily Munster, and Dan Roebuck as Grandpa Munster. In the caption, Rob Zombie writes, Since Halloween is rapidly approaching, I thought it was the perfect time to meet the Munsters. Direct from the set in good old Hungary, I present Herman, Lily, and the Count sitting in front of the newly completed 1313 Mockingbird Lane. It would appear that the rumors were true regarding the movie's cast. From the start, there were reports that Jeff Daniel Phillips would play Herman with Sherry Moon Zombie as Lily. Dan Roebuck happened to be the one other cast member rumored for the cast, though the role he would be portraying wasn't clear. We now have confirmation that he is the new grandpa. As far as the other rumored cast members go, frequent Rob Zombie collaborator Richard Brake is another name that's reportedly involved, though it was similarly unclear who he'd be playing also. Doctor Who actor Sylvester McCoy has also suggested that he's going to be in Zombie's next movie, and some fans had theorized that he might be playing Grandpa. Cassandra Elvira Peterson and Lost Star Jorge Garcia are other names that are still rumored. It's unclear if cameras have officially started rolling on the Munsters, but if not, we can presume that filming is imminent. Just recently, Zombie revealed that the 1313 Mockingbird Lane set had just been completed. He's come a long way since the area they're using was nothing more than grass and dirt a few months ago as he had the entire house built from scratch using blueprints to make sure the details looked exact. He went the extra mile by having all of the Munster's neighbors' homes built as well, constructing all of Mockingbird Lane rather than just the one house. The filmmaker has been posting updates regularly online showcasing the complete process and it shows the real dedication he has to making this a faithful adaptation. Due to the violent and raunchy nature of his previous films, there's been concern from some fans that the Munsters reboot would be a total reimagining in that style. But there's no indication as of now that this will be the case. It helps that Rob Zombie has been a lifelong fan of the Munsters. He's included footage of the show in his first movie, House of a Thousand Corpses, and recently referred to the classic sitcom as the greatest show ever. It looks like Zombie wants to try something new with the Munsters as while it's a horror-themed program, it's a much more family-friendly than typical Rob Zombie movies are. Given his nearly two decades of experience as a filmmaker and his lifelong love for the Munsters, he's perhaps the best person for the job of giving the series a new life. The Munsters doesn't have an official release date, but rumor is it will have a day-and-date release both in theaters and on Peacock. The new sneak peek comes to us from Rob Zombie on Instagram. So this is something I find to be uh, very interesting in the world of the paranormal. Um, the Munsters. Uh, the Munsters was a a very fun um, kind of comedic take on the world of the paranormal. Uh, classic sitcom. Um, something that my five-year-old and I have actually watched together that she enjoyed and thought was fun. And uh, I grew up watching reruns of that show. I always liked that show. Um, and to see that it was going to be rebooted at first was exciting to me. And then I saw that it was going to be directed by Rob Zombie and be a movie and not a TV show. And I thought, oh my, oh my. But uh, just with this announcement on Instagram to see the way that he has painstakingly uh, taken to rebuilding 1313 Mockingbird Lane, to see the pictures of... Uh, the cast in their full makeup and regalia, 
Um, I'm actually more excited about it. It seems that Rob Zombie is taking this seriously, that he wants to uh, maintain and protect kind of the, the heart of what the Munsters originally was and kind of how it, it set out and what it set out to accomplish. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able... I'm going to be a viewer. I'm going to tune in. I'm going to watch. I'm excited about it. I think that it has a lot of potential to be a very good remake and reboot. Um, I don't think that all these classics have to be rebooted. I'm not typically someone that gets excited about every remake, but I'll watch this one, and I'm excited, and I have anticipation that it's building, and I'm looking forward to seeing a uh, a date set for this. It's going to be on Peacock um, and maybe in theaters, um, other streaming services as well. Uh, what do you think? Are you excited about the Mon- the Monsters reboot? Do you think that Rob Zombie was the right choice? Will he do a good job? Uh, send us an email. Let us know what you think about that. I look forward to seeing it. We stay in the world of TV for our next story in the world of the paranormal. Predicting 9-11 was an insane coincidence, says The Simpsons showrunner. Yeah, The Simpsons. One of the original writers for The Simpsons has revealed why he believes the show has such an uncanny ability to accurately guess the future. Indeed, in its over 30 years on air, the animated Nostradamus has been credited with predicting everything from Roy Horn being mauled by a tiger to fish having three eyes, Apple's keyboards having a glitch, the big Game of Thrones surprise ending, European beef being contaminated with horse meat, and perhaps most famously, the September 11th terrorist attacks. The showrunner of The Simpsons, Al Jean, who has been writing for the show since it premiered in 1989, my birth year, believes the trick to its correct prognostications is both luck and the sheer quantity of episodes produced. One of our writers, the guy whose episode predicted Donald Trump as president, said it best, if you write 700 episodes and you don't predict anything, then you're pretty bad. If you throw enough darts, you're going to get some bullseyes, Gene recently told NME. Still, he notes that he finds the show's unintentional 9-11 prediction particularly strange. The 9-11 one is so bizarre, said Gene of the episode. In the World Trade Center episode, The City of New York vs. Homer Simpson, there was a brochure reading $9 a day with an 11 styled up like the towers. That was in 96, which was crazy. Like, this is an insane coincidence. It's not just Providence that makes the Simpsons writers so good at randomly seeing beyond the present, though. It's also intelligence. Mostly, it's just educated guesses, Gene continued. Stanley Kubrick made the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968, and there's Zoom and iPads in it. But that's because he had futurologists helping him construct what the world might look like in 30 years' time. As for the show's own future, Gene says that another Simpsons movie may be down the line, although animators already have more than enough on their plates creating the TV show. We're cursed by high ratings, Gene said. We're still on the air as a TV show, and that takes up a lot of time. I worked on the first movie simultaneous to the show, and it nearly killed the animators. But we have an idea, it's just that we're waiting to see what the environment is. So, one of the showrunners for The Simpsons says that their correct predictions about 9-11 and other things are just a coincidence. Um, You always see these headlines, Simpsons correctly predicted fill-in-the-blank, Donald Trump as president, 9-11 terrorist attacks, all these other things. And it's certainly an interesting story, and it's certainly something that at times is a little bit bizarre. And a little bit freaky. Like, why is this cartoon television show correct in so many instances? And 
I definitely think that part of it is what he said. If you make 700 episodes of a TV show, eventually you're going to get a few things right. However, however, if you just go to YouTube and type in correct Simpsons predictions and watch the reel of all the things over the years they have predicted that have then come true, it's a little bit freaky. It's a little bit bizarre. And it's very, very entertaining. And you can label it synchronicity or chance or coincidence or whatever you want to call it. But that does not take away from the fact that it is both impressive and alarming. And I find it to be newsworthy. (laughs) So I'm giving it to you from the shed at nearly 1 a.m. on a Wednesday. Because that's how we do. And that's what we did. Our last story this week in the world of the paranormal, Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Back during September of 1931, a little 13-year-old girl named Voiry and her parents James and Margaret heard what sounded like rustling and scratching noises coming from behind their farmhouse that had wooden-type panels. At first, they thought it could have been something like a dog or a young child. To their shocking surprise, it was a mongoose. However, this was no ordinary mongoose. It was special because it talked to them. The mongoose introduced itself as Jeff, and that's G-E-F, and then explained how it was born back in New Delhi, India in 1852. So the mongoose was 79 years old? Is my math right? 79? Do mongooses even live to be 79 years old? I do not know the average lifespan of a mongoose. But this was an old mongoose because he was born in 1852 and this was 1931. I believe that's 79 years. I digress. Of course, all of this was really weird and is difficult to believe. Yet the Irving family believed that they came across something rather rare. The family's bizarre story began when James Irving from the village of Dalby on the Isle of Man was ready to read his daily newspaper. It was at this moment when he heard, along with his family, a high-pitched disembodied voice calling out to them impatiently, Read it out, you fat-headed gnome! (laughs) Hey, Jeff is savage. Jeff talking about, read it out, you fatty. What would you do if you're at home about to read the newspaper and you hear some stuff like that from inside your walls? Um, I would grab a sledgehammer is what I would do. I would move is what I would do. Puzzled, James wondered who this might have been. It wasn't his wife or his daughter. It was coming from the mongoose before them. Jeff the mongoose had been living within the family home for a while without their previous knowledge. According to their daughter Voiry, Jeff was the size of a small rat with yellowish fur and a large, bushy kind of tail. The family conveyed how clever this mongoose was. Perhaps it was an earthbound spirit or a ghost taking the form of a mongoose. Jeff explained to them, I am a freak. I have hands and feet, and if you saw me, you'd faint. You'd be petrified, mummified, turned into stone or a pillar of salt. Jeff don't play, do he? Jeff just be giving it to you straight. He says, I am a freak. Jeff talking about, I'm James Taylor. I'm a freak. I have hands and feet, and if you saw me, you would faint. Jeff is very Jeff is very confident and also very freaky. Taking on the role of watchdog, Jeff supposedly guarded their house and informed them of any unwanted guests, including other animals, around. 
If one of them forgot to put out the fire at night, Jeff would go down and stop the stove. Jeff even helped by waking up those who overslept. Why did I say waking? Jeff even helped by waking up those who overslept. When a mouse entered the house, Jeff would be the one to get rid of them by scaring them away rather than killing them. The family began to reward Jeff by giving him biscuits, chocolates, and bananas. Food was often left behind in a saucer dish suspended from the ceiling. That is quite weird. Why would they why would they suspend the saucer dish from the ceiling? Why not just put it on the floor for for Jeff? I don't I don't understand what they're doing in their relation to Jeff. And also if I heard a noise from inside of my wall, I would just not I would not assume that this thing was a mongoose there to protect me or a friendly entity. I would be like, "Hey, there's something talking to me from inside my walls. It is either a ghost um, or there is a human being inside my house, inside the walls. And either way, I am not comfortable here. <laughs> That's just me. Um, that would be my reaction. Uh, but that is just me. The family even began to take Jeff out with them while going to the local market. The talking mongoose would wedge through the hedges, chatting incessantly. After word got around about the special house guest, the newspapers began to run stories about the family and their furry little friend. The story of Jeff became quite popular in tabloid press. A number of journalists went to the family's home trying to catch a glimpse of this special animal. Others would frequent the area in hopes to see or even talk with this unusual creature. As time passed by, no real physical evidence could be recorded. Only small-sized footprints and stains on the wall were seen. The only hairs found belonged to the family's sheepdog, Mona. However, several photos were taken that claimed Jeff was real. Following the death of James Irving, both Margaret and Voirie Irving left their home in 1945. The home was sold for less value than it was worth due to the rumored hauntings there. The following year, in 1946, Leslie Graham bought the farm. She claimed to have killed Jeff. The body put on display was larger than the original description made about Jeff. Leslie would end up dying in 2005 and maintained her story that Jeff was killed by her and not some kind of creation. So-called experts did collect samples from the farm and it was later revealed that the hair belonged to the Irving sheepdog Mona. The paw prints found were also evaluated among different tooth impressions. Reginald Pocock from the Natural History Museum said that these findings were conceivably made by a dog. He did state that none of the markings had been made by a mongoose of any kind. The diaries of James Irving, along with reports about the case, are located in Harry Prince's archives in the Senate House Library at the University of London. It remains a fascinating tale, yet still unexplained entirely. A talking mongoose would surely be famous worldwide. So, the story of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Um... Certainly an interesting one, and the article that I chose to read left out some details that I found to be interesting. So essentially, this family moves into this rural house on the island, the Isle of Man. And uh, they're, they're several miles from neighbors or from town. And uh, as the story says in the article that I read, they hear some noises from inside the wall of their home. And they think it's an animal. And so the father, James Irving, begins to bark at the wall, thinking that he will scare this animal away, but the animal instead responds by barking back toward him. And at that point, I would burn the house down. 
at that point, I would move out. Um, that would be all it took for me. Your boy does not play with this kind of thing. Uh, but whatever was inside the wall barked back at him, and as he began to talk, it continued to mimic the noises back to him and began to talk with him, introducing himself as Jeff and saying that he was a mongoose that was originally born in New Delhi, India. And for a while, Jeff and the family had a very friendly relationship. Um, They kept each other company. They sang songs together. But at some point, things turned sour, and things took a turn toward the dark. And Jeff became hostile in his interactions with the family and possessive over their time and their efforts and their interactions. Um, At one point, Jeff was talking with the daughter, Voiri, And when she left the room, Jeff followed her, saying, You don't have the right to leave me. I can follow you anywhere you go. And his behavior became uh, more hostile and more threatening. And the family became terrified of Jeff the talking mongoose. And this story did become something that was reported in newspapers and tabloids. And it was something that people made fun of the family for and mocked the family for and said was clearly not true and uh, was a sham and something that they just made up out of thin air. And the family stuck by their story and they never doubted it and they never said that it was fake or that it was a put on. And people even came in to investigate to find out whether this was a haunting, whether this was some type of remarkable animal, whether this was a hoax made up by the family. And the results were very inconclusive. Uh, There were some paw prints found uh, inside the wall. Um, There were some weird things that happened. Um, But even psychologists, uh, even ghost hunters, nobody could quite put a finger on or explain for sure what this incident was and what was happening in this story of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. And there's several options here, right? Um, A, it could be a hoax all the way around. The family could have made it up completely. Um... The daughter is the only one who was 13 at the time, the only one to allegedly have seen Jeff the Talking Mongoose, but she wasn't the only one to have heard him, and the parents said that they heard him too, and that they heard him even when they were in the same room with their daughter. So some people have said that maybe the daughter Voiri was a very talented ventriloquist at the age of 13, that she could throw her voice, but the parents were in the room with her and heard Jeff talking. Um... So this could be a full-on hoax. It could be some type of full family delusion where they believe something to be happening that was not. It could be uh, some issue of haunting, whether it be some type of uh, spirit or demonic entity or something of that nature. It could be some magical situation where there was actually an animal in the wall that could talk. Or it could have been another person. They were somehow living inside their house along with them. And if I'm being honest, most of the possibilities in this situation are pretty creepy. Like this story is one that at first seems absurd, but the more you look into it, the more terrifying it becomes. Because if this is some sort of demonic entity or haunting type situation, it's kind of scary. Uh, Jeff started out friendly but became very hostile and volatile and angry. And the family was terrified of him, and that's part of the reason that they moved. If it was uh, some other person in the house, like that is scary, and not something that you would be excited about. It would be my first guess. If, if in my home I hear a voice talking back to me, I think, hey, that's probably another person. I'm about to take a sledgehammer to your dome. Not in my house. 
not on my watch. Papa Bear don't play that. I got a family. We finna get you. You not uh uh-uh. No Jeff with a G. G E F talking about some Jeff with a G. Um if it was a full on family delusion where they all thought something was real that was happening that was not, that might even be the most creepy possibility. If all three of them thought that this was real and it was not, that's terrifying. Uh, If it was a hoax, just a complete hoax from all three of them, the rest of their actions and speech throughout their life do not appear to give credence to that possibility, but it's possible. Or if their 13-year-old was so conniving and talented that she fooled her parents, um, that's creepy also. That 13-year-old would be a creepy individual that I would not want to be a parent of. Or, somehow, even if it's a small percentage of a possibility, if it really was a mongoose that could talk, What in the world would that mean for our conception or perception of reality? Like, none of these are... (laughs) None of these are conclusions that I am comfortable with or that I find less than unsettling. And this is a story that if you look into it, the more you do, the more creepy it becomes. I shared with my wife about this story that I was covering on the show. At first, she started laughing. The more I talked, she was like, okay, please stop. This is creepy. This is weird. And it was reported in newspapers. And even the person that moved in after this family claimed to have seen, thought it was a a hoax, and claimed to have seen an animal matching the description of the daughter run out of the house when they moved in. It's creepy stuff. Jeff the Talking Mongoose. What was going on in this story? Was this a real story? Was it all a hoax? Was Voiry, the 13-year-old, responsible? Did the family actually believe it was real? Was the house haunted? Was there actually an animal that could talk? Was there a demonic presence? Was there a person who was living inside the walls of this home and impersonating a talking mongoose? All creepy possibilities. What do you think happened in this instance? Get at us and let us know. Email us at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at intheshed4. Let us know what you think happened in this instance. Certainly a story worth mentioning in our paranormal segment. And no matter what the reality was is something that I find to be very, 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 very creepy. Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Jeff with a G. And that's how you know that it's creepy. Jeff with a G is creepy to me. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 29. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at InTheShed4. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk some sports, and investigate together the astounding number of disappearances at our national parks and forests. This has been In The Shed with Wes Anderson, the best new show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it!